Hello and welcome to the podcast. You're listening to Be Uncluttered. I'm Tara Tuttle and with me is Rebecca Mazzino and together we are going to help you on your journey to a life free of clutter. Hi and welcome to this week's episode. This week is the first week of a two-part series where we discuss the ancient school of philosophy of Stoicism with Donald Robertson. Donald Robertson is a writer, a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, and he's also well known as an expert on the relationship between modern psychotherapy and classical Greek and Roman philosophy. Hence, I have him with me today to talk about Stoicism in particular, which is a philosophy I have been learning a lot about recently. Donald is the author of uh, several books. The main two that I have read and that are relevant to the discussion today are How to Think Like a Roman Emperor and Stoicism and the Art of Happiness. So let's dive right on in. So welcome, Donald. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I know. It's going to be fun. So I think the first thing we probably should do actually Mm -hmm. is just help out the listeners that have only ever heard of stoicism with a lowercase s. You know what I mean by that the personality trait or the behavior or so. So just to to help them out, because I didn't know much about stoicism before I got involved with it, um, well, not got involved, but started researching it. So I think there'd be lots of people that don't actually understand what it is. Can you give us a quick breakdown of stoicism with a capital S for them? Stoicism with capital S is an ancient Greek school of philosophy. It was founded in 301 BC by a, a Phoenician merchant called Zeno of Citium, who was shipwrecked uh, at, near Athens, which is where I am right now, actually. It's probably shipwrecked like yes. an hour's walk from where I am right now. And uh, it's kind of heavily... You, uh-huh, go on. Can you walk from where you are to the Stoa? Yeah. Which, like, oh, I go to Plato's Academy for a walk every so often. I'm, oh. I've got a secret project, actually. Don't tell anyone this, right? It's just you and me that know about this. <laughs> I want to rebuild Plato's Academy like because the ruins are just down the road from where I am right now. I think we should have like a philosophy centre. I think I saw a video that you did that on Instagram. Really? Where you? Oh, where it was. Did you do a little? You yeah. did a little live or something? Yeah, where you yeah. were. You were there. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, and so now I've mentioned the stoa, so you're going to have to tell everyone about that as well. It's a porch, right? It's okay. It was nice and shady. It was on the edge of the agora, which is the city center, the marketplace. And so that's the Stoics were steeped in Socratic philosophy. They come about a generation um, or so after. Uh, after well, a few generations after Socrates was executed in Athens, so it's a similar kind of philosophy to Socrates in a way. They try to get back to what he taught, and he did mm. philosophy in the agora in the marketplace. So they went back to the marketplace. And they, they went into this nice porch though that overlooks it, where they had some shade. It's actually an art gallery. The Stoa it means the painted porch, and so they would walk up and down there and, and talk about uh, philosophy all day long. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing when you think about how old that was. Athens is the opposite. In terms of decluttering, they've got huge piles of things that men built two and a half thousand years ago. Like yeah. they're like, oh, not another piece there. of crockery. Like, sort of. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that, I can imagine it would be quite. You know, oh yeah, there's another one. There's another ancient piece of of something that someone ate out of. You know, a trillion years ago. Um, I think it must be annoying so, if yes. you want to build something here and you're digging the foundations and you suddenly find a bit of a ruin. That must be a problem. 
<laughs> it probably is. Take a long time to get council approval to do anything because yeah, there approval. might be something in there. <laughs> um, so, and then lowercase stoicism is yes. it sort of obviously came from the the uppercase stoicism from the philosophy, but it sort of gives actually the way we use the word mm-hmm. now actually gives the wrong idea of what stoicism really is, doesn't it? That's right. That was the point of your question, actually. So (laughs) lowercase stoicism, to educate the listener, is uh, just a personality trait. It means an unemotional coping style. So people usually say it means having a stiff upper lip. And it comes from the the Greek, uh, the capitalist stoicism, the Greek school of philosophy. But it's really a caricature of it. It's got, in in fact, it's quite the opposite of what the stoic philosophy teaches. So the reason this is important is that the, I'm a cognitive psychotherapist by profession. There's a fairly large body of modern scientific research that shows that lowercase stoicism is bad for you. It's toxic, <laughs> as the kids say. So, like, it's not good for your long-term mental health. And in terms of resilience, it's the opposite. It makes you more vulnerable rather than more resilient. So mm. I won't go into the reasons why. You know, I guess you could just trust me on that for now. But capitalist stoicism is healthy psychologically. So you really wouldn't want to confuse something that's known to be bad for your mental health with something that's probably good for your mental health. Yeah, which is why I've got you on today because it has proven to be good for your mental health. So my first real experience with stoicism was quite recent and Tara and I were researching an episode on happiness versus contentment Mm -hmm. and she found this word um, eudonymia Uh and I was like "Ooh, what's that because I didn't recognize the word and I love words and Uh I kind of went into a rabbit hole that I was saying to you off air that I haven't come out of yet (laughs) Um, I have read your books um, Uh as well as uh, six others on stoicism and I'm still going and I even treated myself to a (laughs) <laughs> I um, <laughs> bought a hardcover version of Meditations even, like uh-huh. a really pretty version oh, that I put on my coffee table and just pick up every now and then. And previously I had no real interest or knowledge in philosophy at all. Um, uh-huh. I had a business degree. Uh-huh. I had a, a secular upbringing, um, no religion, nothing sort of anything to really to do with philosophy. But in the mm-hmm. past year or so I've actually been reading a lot on religion and ritual and mm-hmm. habit and I was focusing mostly on Zen Buddhism and Shinto in my reading. And mm-hmm. um, and then when I found the Stoic philosophy, it kind of I saw so many similarities between what I loved about Buddhism yeah. and what, you know, and, and Stoicism. And so that's sort of how I found it. Now you've mm-hmm. been studying it for well, like over 20 years. What mm-hmm. was your first experience with it? How did you find it? You're a psychotherapist, but how did you find Stoicism? Because they didn't teach and me. And why it. did it resonate? Yeah. Sorry. Well, because basically they paradoxically, everything, everything cool is a paradox about ancient philosophy. I get into Stoicism because nobody told me about it, ironically, <laughs> right? So I did a, a degree in philosophy at Aberdeen University and it's four years in Scotland, right? So I spent four years like really looking for something in philosophy. I was looking for a way of life from academic philosophy and I loved philosophy, but by the end of it, I said to myself, I really didn't find what I was looking for. And I thought Buddhism kind of offers a, a way of life that was appealing to me. Mm. Um, but I can't find something that's kind of a substitute for that in Western philosophy. Now, academic philosophers don't put Stoicism on the undergraduate curriculum. It's, it's one of the few major schools of historical, like uh, ancient philosophy that they don't tend to teach. I studied Plato, I studied Aristotle, but didn't study the Stoics. And if you ask them why, they'll say, well, 
the Stoics just take concepts from earlier philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, and they develop the everyday practical application of those ideas. So why would anybody want to read that? <laughs> and that's honestly what they say, right? So they go, all they do is take concepts from Alpha and like figure out how it would help you in or, or <laughs> why would anyone care about that? So that's why they don't study it. And I thought, well, the reason that they don't study it is the reason that everybody else is actually interested in it, particularly psychotherapists, because yeah. it helps our clients. So there you go. That's why I get into it. Mm. No, that's interesting. So, because our listeners, and this is uh, um, one of the things that I I was really interested to read was um, first, and I don't know whether it was your book or another book. Like I said, they're coming blurring together at the moment. Uh, but sort of in, right at the start, mentioned the link between modern cognitive behavioural therapy and Stoic philosophy. And I'm uh-huh. a fan of CBT, and I have uh-huh. some minor training in it. Like definitely nothing major, but it's uh-huh. a minor training in it. And I kind of dabble in it with my clients, and and I sort of you know use some of those techniques when I'm talking to my clients and I'm getting them to challenge their um, their thought processes, their behaviours, their beliefs and all that. So I kind of use it in a little way. So I'm particularly interested in that because mm-hmm. our, our listeners, they feel anxious and overwhelmed about their stuff and they find it hard to let yeah. go. They often acquire an excess of stuff. They know they're doing it but they mm-hmm. still continue to do it. And so when you combine an, a, like a difficulty letting go and acquiring more stuff, you it, it it's the result is that you you don't feel any you don't feel very good and your life is not very easy. Yeah. One of the things that you talked about in your book in the how to think like a Roman emperor was was how to conquer fear. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering if it's fear that what is causing people to keep things. I I that's my stance is that it is. But yeah. how can they? How could a Stoic teacher help them overcome that fear? Well, there are actually a whole bunch of things that stoicism might do to help somebody who's anxious about letting go of things. I should say, by the way, <clears throat> slight digression, do you know how much stuff I have personally? Very little? It all fits in a suitcase, uh, in quite so a small suitcase. Little. So you're a minimalist yeah, as well. Hmm. Um, I, I didn't realize I was, and then one day, you know, I scratched my head and I thought, oh, yeah, I guess I'm a minimalist. I didn't really <laughs> even thought, but it was unintentional. But I like kind of traveling and stuff, so I got rid of almost all of my stuff. Um, you know, my trusty laptop's the main thing that I carry around with me and enough clothes for a week. And yeah. that's pretty much it, you know. So I've got some personal experience of letting go of, of things. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, a lot of people would say it's almost kind of addictive, kind of purging and getting rid of all of your stuff. It's, it can be quite, um, quite a liberating feeling. Yeah. A lot of people um, say the same, yeah. Yeah, like, so, and also just to kind of come full circle, you mentioned eudaimonia earlier, which is a really cool word, incidentally. Mm. The the Stoics would say, look, I wrote an article recently about Marcus Aurelius and, he, he, you know, what he says about, I guess, minimalism in a way. Stoicism is a huge, complicated philosophy, unlike lowercase Stoicism, which mm. is a very simplistic idea. Ancient Stoicism flourished for five centuries. Like, mm. it's massive, complex, and many facets to it. However, and, you know, sometimes you can reduce aspects of it to something very, very simple. So Marcus says to himself, he quotes uh, a Greek philosopher called Democritus, who says, do little if you want contentment of life. And Marcus says, well, rather than just saying do little, it'd be better to ask yourself of each thing that you do, is this really necessary? 
And by that, he says he means, does it contribute to your fundamental goal in life, which would be eudaimonia for the Stoics? So the Stoics say, look, just ask yourself this one question. Does hanging on to this, give me an example quickly of a piece of clutter, um, random a, object. A, an alarm clock. Alarm clock, you might need that. Okay, well, I guess you could use your phone. <laughs> your third Does alarm I, clock. Your third alarm yeah, clock. The one that doesn't spare work. One. Yeah, your spare one. <laughs> right. Like the your, your Mickey Mouse one from childhood that doesn't yes. work anymore. Exactly. Like the does hanging onto this thing actually contribute to eudaimonia? Like, is it necessary in that sense to your fulfillment in life, or you know, is it unnecessary? Is it just by? So Marcus would say, it's clutter if it doesn't really contribute to your well-being and flourishing. Like that's what life is all about. Mm. You know, if it doesn't contribute to that, then it's unnecessary, and you can potentially get rid of it. And you need to ask yourself why you wouldn't get rid of it as well. Like, why would, what's your, what are your reasons for hanging on to it if given that it's not actually contributing to your well-being? So I would ask another question that's a little bit more carefully worded, which would be, and it's, this is a very general purpose question, right? You, can, you could almost deal with any problem just by coming back to this basic question. Does doing this thing bring you closer to achieving eudaimonia? by which we mean fulfillment, like the goal of life, mm. or does it take you in the opposite direction? If it does neither, then it's not a biggie. Mm. But if hanging on to this alarm clock somehow takes you further away from eudaimonia, then stop it. <laughs> That's mm. You're going in the wrong direction in life, right? So you can think of it as, like, as if you're standing at a fork in the road, like, does it take you down the right path or down the wrong path in terms of the most important thing in life? And that's a, a bit of an abstract question. It's a hard question, but it's the most fundamental question. Mm. And so then if they were to counter with a, come back with a counter argument, um, which is, okay, so it might not <clears> be helping me reach my goal in the long term of long term well being and, and happiness, because it's rather irrelevant, uh -huh. like an alarm clock. At the end of my life, I'm not going to look back and go, "Gee, I'm really glad I had three alarm clocks," because you know my life would have been miserable without them. So we we all kind of know that. But the counter argument is, okay, so I know that it's not going to have that long term goal, but in the short term, I feel comforted by having a spare alarm clock. Or I feel mm. comforted by having this from my childhood. So then what, what What do we say then? Well, first of all, in general in psychotherapy, right, what you've just said is like a red rag to a bull <laughs> to a modern psychotherapist, by the way, right? They'll be all over that, right, mm. if a client says that in psychotherapy. Because me, almost, again, this is very, very general, almost all problems, many, many problems in life, consistent people doing things that feel easier or comforting in the short term but are harmful or contribute to their unhappiness in the longer term mm -hmm. so a great deal of psychotherapy consists in getting people to sacrifice short-term feelings of comfort and reassurance for their longer term welfare or benefit there's sometimes you've got to do uncomfortable things to actually flourish in life in fact you know that's normal you've got to, you go to the gym and you do exercise it might be a little bit uncomfortable but it's better for you in the long run mm. you go to the dentist and have your bad tooth taken out you know it's not much fun in the short term but you'll be happier in the long term so a great deal of psychotherapy 
uh, and stoicism is aligned with this as well, mm. is saying to yourself, you know, if you want to flourish in life, you have to le- fundamentally learn this perspective of prioritizing your longer-term well-being over short-term mm. comfort. And so the Stoics would put that into practice on a daily basis as yeah. part of. So one of the things that now you're going to have, you might have to fill in the gaps for me here because my memory will fail me because I have a trash memory, but there are sort of like four pillars to the philosophy or four, mm-hmm. um, is there a better word for it? I think you know where I'm going with this, but we have. You mean um, the four cardinal virtues, I think? That's it. The, the, four, vi- the four virtues? The, yeah, the four virtues. So we have, um, and I'm not going to say them in order because I won't remember, but I think we've got wisdom, courage, mm-hmm. moderation, mm-hmm. And uh-huh. I'm forgetting the fourth one. Oh, the fourth one's tricky. It's got to do with other people and uh, treating them fairly. Justice. That's it. Yeah, well done. I remember. You win the prize. <laughs> Thanks. Um, <laughs> so I, I sort of also see with those sort of those virtues, I see that kind of coming mm-hmm. into play a little bit as well. And I remember when I when I read about um, the moderation or the temperance. Um, so I think temperance mm-hmm. is the old word, and they've moderation has been sort of put in more recently. Yep. I sort of looked at that and I thought that that is another way as well of saying to yourself rather than meeting my all of my needs right now or my short-term needs right now by maybe doing some uh, retail therapy for example. Yeah. I could exercise temperance in order to reach my long-term goal. Would that be fair to say? You're spot on. Oh, cool. You're, like, you're spot on there, buddy. That's absolutely 100% right. And ancient Greek philosophy goes on about this a lot. The ancient, the Greeks, in fact, even today, the Greeks are obsessed with the concept of med- moderation. Mm-hmm. You know, they have uh, various sayings like the, oh, Greek philosophy was originally much of it inspired by the sayings of a woman uh, called the Pythia, who was a priestess in the temple of Delphi, which is just outside mm-hmm. Athens. And she would give these pronouncements that came from the god Apollo. And the f- two most famous ones that were engraved in pillars at the entrance to the temple were Ganothai Siauton, which means know yourself, know thyself, uh, yes, and Maiden Agan, which means uh, nothing in excess or nothing too much, or as we say today, mm. all things in moderation. So this is central to, to Greek culture. It goes, it's, it's like prehistory almost. It's at the very origins in the mists of time, like the very mm. beginning uh, of philosophy. So this idea of mod- – and I think they go together, right? Yeah. Because in order to know when something is too much, you require – self-knowledge because it's different for everyone what's too much sleep for you is different from what's too much sleep for me what's like uh, too many beers for you is different from what's too many beers for me what's too many tins of baked beans for you is too, and so what's too much clutter for you is different from what's too much so you need self-knowledge in order to be able to know where to draw the line for yourself yeah. like and on the other side of that line you don't want to go there because that's like, you know, that's taking you in the wrong direction. direction. But uh, we need self-knowledge and self-observation to figure that out because everyone's a wee bit different in that regard. Yeah, yeah. And that is temperance. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and I sort of, that's something that I exercise in my daily life quite well in certain areas and terribly <laughs> in others. Yeah. And like I am, I, I am a Coke drinker and 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's embarrassing to admit, but I have, I drink it every day, and it's it's a habit, and I unashamedly love it. I have it was kind of a joke, you know. People send me things with Coke on them, and I have Coke earrings, and you know. Anyway, it's, it's really embarrassing. But uh-huh. um, but then in in the other sense, I don't have any clutter, and and other things that I bring into my house, non consumable things that don't come in yet red cans. Um, I'm really uh-huh. you know quite good at moderating what comes into my life in in that sense. So I don't have a clutter problem. <laughs> I have a blood sugar problem instead um and so you know i i sort of really paid attention to that that whole that whole temperance side of things and i thought that that would be that is a really good lesson for us in in so many ways yeah absolutely i mean the the greeks that you know so we have these four cardinal virtues and wisdom they generally think is the most important one Mm -hmm. but temperance they keep coming back to like they really you know socrates talks about it a lot in particular like they really think in terms of like our, our quality of life and our character, this is kind of the key to it. And they talk a lot about this idea um, that uh, people who lack temperance actually, Socrates says it, 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 it doesn't even achieve your own goals. For example, somebody, he says, who overindulges in food, he says, drinking when you're not thirsty and eating when you're not hungry is his way of illustrating it. He says, it will spoil your appetite. And he said that the irony is if you want to really enjoy food and that's your kind of goal, like you're better to do it in moderation because you'll get more pleasure from it. Mm. So one of his famous sayings is uh, hunger is the best relish or the best sauce. Ah, um, yeah, that makes sense. He was running, he was jogging one day, Socrates, around the Agora, and somebody said, like, Greeks thought that was really weird. And they were like, what, what are you doing? Why are you just randomly running around? And he said, I'm preparing the sauce for my dinner. <laughs> what he meant was we would say he's working up an working appetite. Working up an appetite, yeah. 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 They had some of the those Greek philosophers were, were athletes too, weren't they? Which one was it that was the bo- – there was one that was a boxer and then there was one that was a runner, um, Stoic. You mean the Stoics? Yeah. Cleanthes, the second head of the school, was a boxer and Chrysippus yeah. was a – the third head of the school was a long-distance runner. Yeah, but mo- all ones. Greeks and Romans did boxing and wrestling and, um, and partly the reason for that is that they had citizen armies so they – um, you know, they were militaristic cultures, so they yeah. expected all the young men to do these martial arts yeah. in order to prepare themselves for military service. So they were all pr- like, compared to us. It really fit. Jeez, yeah, like yeah. you wouldn't believe. Yeah. Because I sort of, when I think of philosophers, I think of old men with beards and glasses and just sitting there with a book. I don't yeah. think of like a buff young Greek who, you know, like can yeah run around <laughs> for hours and then you know sit down and and spout an amazing wisdom. It's quite you know and it's, it's an adjustment. And this is my my newness to philosophy with, that that has me thinking that this sort of I've got this old idea in my head um, that they. Well, this is a big question for the viewer. Like the our philosophers buff. That's the, the <laughs> that's really the question of the day. Socrates was actually notoriously not buff. To be honest, he yeah. was. Uh, he was he was a kind of chubby. Uh, they say some weird things about him. Xenophon, one of his students, says that Socrates has eyes like a crab, <laughs> and Plato says he has a face like a torpedo fish. Um, <laughs> so they're 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 quite mean to him, but he doesn't yeah. seem to take it too personally. Well, you know, he's a philosopher, so he knows how to rise yeah, above it. Mm. He's philosophical about it. <laughs> um, so one of the other things I wanted to talk about was attachment, and we've kind of 
touched on this really briefly. Uh-huh. I, I'm really interested in attachment because of obviously what I do is I spend most of my days talking to my clients about what they're attached to basically. And I sort of have really um, seen parallels um, with the Buddhist philosophy when reading about the Stoics sort of take on attachment. So what do the Stoics say about attachment? Because you know more than I do. And how can we remove that as an yeah. obstacle? It's kind of similar to Buddhism, actually. And uh, actually, the weird thing is the earliest, but although Buddhism is old, the earliest Buddhist scriptures we have only date from the first century AD, shock horror, ah. whereas the like Stoicism yeah. derives Pre-based this aspect that. of it. Hmm. from way older, like from the 6th century BC, from a pre-Socratic, before even Socrates, Ah. this guy called Heraclitus, um, who had this philosophy that we call pantare, which means in Greek, everything flows. And and Heraclitus said, you cannot step into the same river twice, for new waters are constantly flowing in. So he said, it's not the same river, because it's different water each time, although we say it's the same river it's a different physical object it's a different bunch of water and he said the whole universe is like that everything is in flux nothing lasts forever and therefore you shouldn't get overly attached to things and ancient philosophers thought that when you focus they they realized that what they call metaphysics or, or they just called it physics actually it was psychology. So like now, because of the industrial revolution and the division of labor and all that, we, we think of psychotherapists and philosophers as two different groups of people and theologians are different and blah, blah, blah. But in the ancient world, it, all these disciplines were the same. Like they were just different facets of one thing. So okay. people thought that doing metaphysics or physics was a form of psychotherapy, right? And they thought if you understand the universe as being in constant flux or change, it has a psychological effect. It makes you feel less emotionally attached to the mm-hmm. things that are around you. And if you contemplate their absence or their transience, like to, to think of something as transient means to represent something's presence and absence in a sense at the same time in your mind. And that uh, that encourages feelings of gratitude for your, the fact that you temporarily possess it, but mm. also non-attachment to it. So Stoics have many ways of reminding themselves of this. So they say, rather than saying you own something, you should tell yourself that you have it on loan from the universe. From the universe, yeah. Yeah, even people, they should. They say you should say that people, your, your loved ones are on loan from the universe. Your own yeah. life is on loan from the universe so that you have this kind of sense of the bigger picture. And they yeah. also, from Heraclitus, say that you should try and broaden your perspective and think of the whole of space and time and your place within it, which is kind of hardcore first thing in the morning, I find. <laughs> Although, weirdly, that's when they say you should do it. They say when you get out of bed... Just think about the whole of cosmic space and time. I see how that, you know, see how you feel about that, buddy. And then they think that when we do that, like, again, it requires thinking about your alarm clock, but also it requires you thinking about the absence of your alarm clock because it's a tiny speck in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. And when you simultaneously think about the presence and absence of something, they think that loosens your emotional attachment to it. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's a, a healthy way of being in general. Like it allows you to your life to go more smoothly, they think. Yeah, and it would reduce your anxiety because you don't have any expectations of of anything sticking around, basically, or being permanent. Yeah, and 
Once you do lose something, you're, the, the Stoics also think we should be prepared for adversity. A good example would be the mm. pandemic, by the way. People always say to me, you haven't asked me this question, right? But the thing I, I, we said earlier that a lot of interviewers ask the same questions. <laughs> so I'll do it for They say, what would the Stoics say about the pandemic? And the strange answer to that is the Stoics would say, well, you know, like we saw it coming. Like they would mm. say the, the wise man or woman is prepared for adversity. And geez, of all the things that we could be prepared for, the pandemic was something that everybody, all the epidemiologists were like, you know, this is going to happen eventually, right? Yeah. Like there's, end, there's all these videos of Bill Gates from like decades ago or whatever going, you know, there's going to be a pandemic like eventually, mm. you know, we should be getting ready for that. So the idea that it's a big shock and unexpected and stuff is just kind of, you know, Weird. us all being a bit naive in mm. a way. And I hate to break this to people, right? But there's probably going to be another one at some point, mm. eventually. You know, it may or may probably, not be within our lifetime. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, definitely eventually. There's got to be, right? But it may or may not be within our lifetimes, right? Mm. But, the, you know, again, it, that's the stoic way is to just be very rational and factual mm. about things and common sense and basically just face the reality of life. So... Loss as well. The Stoics think you have to be realistic about the fact that everything is, you know, relationships are often transient, right? And be prepared at least for the possibility that, you know, the things that you currently have, you might lose, especially in the ancient world where things were more unpredictable, if you like, and Mm. less under people's control. Bandits could come and take everything you own for all you know, right? Like, you know, your safety isn't really guaranteed. Mm. So, So people, in a sense, were inherently less attached to things and that sort of might have given perhaps given the stoics a reputation for being unemotional and unfeeling because yeah. they their attitude was you you do not grieve your wife you know you uh-huh. you, you don't you shouldn't do that that's not sort of the, this the is way. a good question can i just interject there and say they would say the opposite they would say actually the only way to truly love somebody like authentically love someone is to accept the reality of the relationship like as honestly and truthfully as you can and that would mean recognizing that their life isn't up to you and that it's temporary Mm. and that's how controversial like because the the modern concept the vexed modern concept of romantic love is inherently idealistic right when you watch whatever Bridget Jones's diary or like rom-coms and stuff like they're purveying a conception of romantic love that's inherently crazy and idealistic and kind of irrational and the Stoics would say that that's if you want that's not really what love is right if you really want to authentically love someone then you should accept them as an independent being with free will and they're changeable and the relationship is transient like in mm-hmm. to, so Epictetus says you know, to really love somebody, you you should you should be guided by wisdom and reason, and be ready for them to leave, in some way. Yeah, and and then you can be more grateful and more. I mean, to put it really, to kind of simplify it a bit, if you um, recognize the transience of things, it allows you to be more grateful for the time that you do have together. Would yeah. be one way of putting it. Yeah. Um. And so the Stoics would say, no, we think the opposite. We think to have a proper, flourishing, emotional life, like you need to accept the mm-hmm. transience of things and, and non-attachment. And the Stoics were actually thought to be quite affectionate. 
or known to be quite affectionate and, and loving, weren't they? I think so. They're quite cuddly, really. <laughs> like, you know, not talking about the, you, uh, the modern ones. I'm talking yeah, about. I'm them. really. I'm very. I'm, I'm the most affectionate Stoic. <laughs> they no, the most. I think one of the cuddliest, cuddliest Stoics or proto Stoics is so- Socrates. No one has ever. Socrates was famous for introducing this. Uh, let's. This is our little jargon alert number two. We had eudaimonia. The other term we use is apatheia, which doesn't sounds like apathy, right? But it doesn't mean apathy. It means being free from unhealthy attachment, unhealthy desires and emotions. And Socrates, we're told, introduced this concept. But Socrates is really one of the cuddliest philosophers. I mean, he was a he was a tough guy. He was a veteran of, of the Peloponnesian War, and he was known as a, a decorated military hero. But he's he's a really I always think of him as he's a very approachable guy. Um, he's charming. He's funny. No one would ever I think because he's got a good sense of humor. Right? No one would ever really accuse him of being like Mister Spock. I said to mm-hmm. someone the other day, if you bumped into Socrates and Mister Spock of Star Trek, like in a bar or something. <laughs> That you wouldn't confuse them, <laughs> yeah. Like apart, even even without the pointy ears, right? <laughs> you still wouldn't get those two people mixed up. Socrates is a much more natural, kind of like uh, you know, warm, friendly mm. character. Mm. And uh, the Stoics were known for their sense of humor. Strangely, you know, they wrote satires, some of which survive today, and books yeah. about jokes. Chrysippus, the third head of the Stoa, the long distance runner that you mentioned earlier, mm. he died laughing at I one of his that. own jokes yeah. about a donkey. <laughs> yeah. He laughed himself to death. Laughed himself to death. <laughs> like, but a one of the most influential Stoics. Yeah. 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 And that's that this is the thing, you know, that there there is that that reputation. And and I think like Marcus as well was another one who was quite open with his affection, wasn't he? You know, the at the start of meditations he talks basically about everything he loves about all of the people that he loves. Oh, people he loves. And he talks about, I'll tell you, by the way, just as an aside, one of my favorite descriptions of Stoicism, and he's talking about a guy called Sextus of Chironea, who's one of his teachers in Stoicism. And Marcus describes this guy as being free. He actually says he's, he has apatheia. He says, you know, free from irrational or unhealthy emotions, and yet full of love. The word for love mm. he uses is philostorgia, um, which kind of means the affection of a parent for a child or family affection. Mm-hmm. A brotherly love, you could say. So he says he's he's free from passion yet full of love mm. is how they sometimes translate it. So he doesn't mean passion in the sense that we do. He means pa- it, pa- the passion. Um, kind of pathos is the, the root. Anger. It's the root of our word pathological. Yeah. Actually, so it kind of uh, means um, both d- emotion and disease. So it means unhealthy uh, emotions, but full of love. Philostorge says mm. this guy's kind of like. And he says that about all of his uh, Stoic teachers. And Marcus, we have his private letters, and he's quite—he's he's a very incredibly affectionate guy. Mm. I mean, I think something that would strike modern readers, if they read his letters, they, they would be shocked at how affectionate he is um, towards his, his family friends. Mm. And he loves his mum. He, lo- he calls his mm. children. And this is unusual for a Roman noble. Like, generally, Romans viewed their kids kind of like his, I don't know, assets or sort of commodities. Yeah. Like, and the, you know, the, the Roman fathers didn't spend much time with, with young children. That was left to, to nurses. Um, they were only interested in them really when they got older. But mm. Marcus calls his children his little chicks in their nest. 
and he he's he's very kind of warm and affectionate towards him, mm. and he's got a bit of a sense of humor as well. Mm. So yeah, like it's not true that Stoics are are robots. Um, Stoics have feelings too, as I like to say. <laughs> They would. I must apologise to the listeners for the um, the philosophers' names that we're kind of throwing out here without giving you any background on them. Uh, yeah. What I will do is um, obviously put links in the show notes to some of these ones that we've mentioned so you can have a bit of a background on who Chrysippus is and who Marcus is. I mean, we probably actually should give Marcus a bit more credit and say because he was the one they know the most who famous. They Yeah. Um, they need They've to all know seen Gladiator, right? Well, have they all seen? I'm pretty sure I saw. Am I getting old now? I didn't know who he was, so, so I, I apologize. It's a while back now. Yeah, um, go back and watch Gladiator again because he's in the first act. <laughs> like he's not Russell Crowe. There's a clue. He's Richard Richard Harris. Richard Harris in the, okay. the first act of Gladiator. That's and you go, oh, that guy. Yeah, that's Marcus Aurelius. And and he is, you know, one of the the most famous Stoics, and he was the last great Stoic, really, wasn't he? Um, it wasn't sort of yeah, any major, strangely, you know, um, not counting you. Um, so yeah, we, apart from we, me, yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, so it's sort of uh, I will be putting you know, like some of these names we've thrown around. Um, you know, you're probably like, huh, what? And um, don't worry, you can you can read mm-hmm. up on this later if you if you are interested. Okay, so that is going to round out this week's part of the episode on Stoicism. And uh, apologies for the screeching birds in the background. Uh, we recorded this at a time that wasn't a usual time of recording for me. So uh, even though the cockies do screech a little bit during my normal recording times, they're definitely not as vocal as they are at dusk, which is when we recorded this interview due to the time differences between Australia and Athens. And so the cockies were particularly uh, expressive (laughs) during this time. So if you hear the screeching, there's no one dying in the background. It's just a sulfur-crested cockatoo having its usual dusk uh, screech fest. So I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did and uh, we look forward to you joining us next week for the second half. Thanks for joining us. We'd love it if you'd leave a review or tell all your friends about us so they too can be uncluttered. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us at beuncluttered.com.au or on social media or on our own websites at clearspace.net.au and basklifecoaching.com.